All right. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to Eaglebrook Church. Really good to have you with us today at all eight of our campuses across the Twin Cities. Our eighth campus, we launched, if you remember, out at Lakeville South High School, and we're so excited to see what God has been doing out there. And so if you know somebody who lives in the south suburbs of the Twin Cities and doesn't have a great church that they currently attend, be perfect place to invite them. They have services at 9 and 11 on Sunday morning. And then in October, October 25th and 26th, we are launching our ninth campus in Rochester. So again, if you know people who live out in the Rochester area, just make sure they're aware of that weekend. And if you're someone from Rochester and you plan on attending that campus, you can go onto our website, eaglebrookchurch.com. You can do the little drop-down box to get to the Rochester campus if you're interested in volunteering and serving. I know they're starting to pull that together. We've hired a whole staff out at Rochester. They're ready to go, and so we're excited to see what God's going to do in October. All right, today we are in the third and final week of a series called Done With That. It's based on our senior pastor, Bob Merritt's book by the same title. And I love the book. It's an incredible book, but I love the main premise of the book the most. See, many people live their life, they put their faith in Christ, but then they struggle to leave that old life of sin behind and step into the new life that Jesus Christ has for them. And this book will help you to be done with that. It's a question I've actually wondered myself. I've been a follower of Christ now for over 20 years, and yet I still struggle with sin so much. In fact, just a couple weeks ago, I went and put a sprinkler on in my backyard, a, couple, a little over a year ago, we moved into a new house, and in order to forego some costs, I said, you know what? We don't need a sprinkler system. I'll just walk around the yard with my hose and my sprinkler. I did that at our first house. It was no big deal. I said, this is going to be fine. Can I give you five reasons why it's not fine? <laughs> Number one, our house is white. Number two, our outside water has so much iron in it that it is rusty orange and it stains on contact. Number three, my wife put two L-shaped decorative fences up in our front yard that are also white and stain on contact. Number four, our front yard is shaped like a deformed kidney bean. And number five, our yard is bigger than it was at our first house. This has been the death of me this summer. I've been walking around with the hose and the sprinkler all around my yard. And if I hit the street, I don't want to stain that. Don't want to hit the driveway, don't want to hit the decorative fence, don't want to hit the house. Finally, I went inside one day and I said to my wife, I said, if you love me at all, if in 17 years of marriage I have done anything to add value to your life, I said, you will get me a sprinkler system for Father's Day. Just a couple weeks ago, I took the sprinkler out to the backyard, I put it on, and then I forgot about it. Went to bed, left it on the whole night. Woke up the next morning, my son came upstairs and said, Dad, the whole back of our house is orange. He's prone to exaggeration, so I said, can't be. Went downstairs, oh no, he was right. The whole back of the house from the ground to about six feet up was orange. I don't know if the wind blew it or an animal bumped it, but someone had bumped the sprinkler and it was basically shooting the back of my house all night long. Now, a mature person who's living in the new Christ life that Christ has for them would have said, my bad. I'm the one who left it on all night. I need to go get some stain remover and just tackle this thing. I didn't do that. I walked upstairs and I said to my wife, I said, I told you. I told you something like this was going to happen. This is why I asked for a sprinkler system. And I started to blame her. 
I said, I'm not going to get the stain remover. You, you take on that thing. I'm, I'm just done. Why did I do that? Well, because I'm selfish. I'm self-centered. And there's a residue of my old life that I haven't quite gotten rid of. Some of you are curious. Did you get the sprinkler system for Father's Day? No, instead, I got a little piece of paper. It was like an IOU from the movie Dumb and Dumber. And on there, it said, I owe you a pair of knockoff AirPods. So not the real AirPods from Apple, but like the knockoff ones you can get at Walmart for like $25. Suits me right because I did the same thing for our anniversary. I gave a coupon for real AirPods, and neither my wife or I have cashed in on these coupons yet. So what happens after 17 years of marriage? You just... We're just killing marriage right now. You know, it's like anniversary, birthday, Christmas. Where's a notebook? Let me just figure out a gift here and give to you. All right. Here, I love what Bob says in his book. He says, I'm learning, and I hope you are too, that the new life is not a destination, a place that you can get to and say, I'm finally here. And it's not a state of perfection either, because that's unattainable for anyone this side of heaven. The new life, he writes, is really less of one thing and more of another. In other words, at no point in your life are you going to get to this place and go, you know what, I think I've arrived. I can't even remember the last time I sinned. I mean, two, three years ago, maybe. I mean, I'm pretty much perfect. Because the new life isn't about perfection. It's about progress. That when people look at your life, they ought to see less sin. They ought to see you more like Jesus Christ. They ought to see less selfishness. They ought to see more love for other people and more love for God. In other words, the new life is less of some things and more of others. Look what the Bible says about this in 2 Corinthians 5. Paul writes, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. I love that. Because I wonder if there are some of us here today who have done something in your past that you still are affected by today. It weighs you down, you regret it, you feel horrible about yourself. And I just want to point out the language here. He says, the old has passed away. When something passes away, it dies. It's no longer with us. That means that the old person, the old you that did that, they, they actually no longer live. Uh, yeah, that's passed away. He says, instead, the new has come. Another verse in Ephesians 4, Paul writes, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. So many people have this former way they used to live. And then they become a follower of Christ, but they get pulled back into that former life. Former language, former friends, former behavior, former way of thinking. He says, you need to put that off, and instead you need to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. One more verse, Romans 6. He says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism, that's with Jesus, into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we might walk in the newness of life. That is my prayer for each of you today, that you would begin to walk not just know, not just think about, but that you would begin to walk in the newness of life that Jesus Christ has for every one of us. But in order for that to take place, there are three shifts that need to happen in your life and in my life. Here's the first shift that needs to take place. You need to shift from rebellion to obedience. 
Here's what rebellion is. Rebellion is when you know something's wrong and you say, I'm going to do that anyway. So you know you should go home after work and spend time with your family, but instead you decide to go to the bar with your buddies. You know you should apologize, but instead you stay quiet. You kind of minimize your own offense and you let that relationship grow cold. You know you shouldn't flirt with your married coworker, but you look for any excuse that you can find to go walk by their desk. You know you shouldn't pad the expense report, but you justify it and think, they got so much money. They'll never even notice. It's rebellion. It's when you know something's wrong, but you do it anyway. Let me ask you, is there any rebellion in your life right now? See, here's what I believe is true. Our greatest vulnerability is often connected to our greatest desire. Let me explain what I mean by that. Each of us have desires, and those are good. Those are God-given desires in our lives. But the problem is when we start to desire something so much that we are willing to disobey God to get it. So in my case, I desire relaxation. I desire a stress-free life. And so when I see the back of my house all stained, I start to act in ways and speak in ways that God wouldn't want me to act or speak. Anything like that in your life? My wife desires that our kids would be sexually pure and that they wouldn't see images that would affect them later in life, and that's a good desire. But one of my kids knows this about my wife. And so one day he devised a plan. He was sitting with his brother and his sister, and he said, hey, when you hear mom coming down the stairs... I'm going to take the remote control for the TV and I'm going to use the voice activated button and I'm going to hold it down and I'm going to go R rated family movies. And then I want you to pause for like one, 1,000, two, 1,000. And then you go, ew, what's that? So they hear mom coming down the stairs and they pull it off to plan. He pushes the button. He goes, R-rated family movies. One, 1,000, two, 1,000. Both kids go, ew. My wife almost dropped our baby. She came flying down that stairs so fast. She tripped on the last step, came flying into the room. To her credit, she laughed when she found out it was a joke. But is there anything like that in your life? You want it so bad but it's causing you to trip up. You want it so bad, but it's actually causing you to be vulnerable. Maybe you're single and you want to be married. You want to be dating someone. And you see friends of yours that are doing that. And that's a good desire. You want that desire, but you've decided to desire it so much that you're vulnerable to dating the wrong person or doing things in a dating relationship that you know God wouldn't want you to do. Maybe you so desire success that you started to become afraid of failure. And you don't even want to try. You don't even want to give it a shot because you desire to be successful in all ways. Is there an area of your life where your greatest desire has become your greatest vulnerability? Look what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2. He says, work hard to show the results of your salvation. In other words, you've put your faith in Christ Now you want to show the results of that. He says, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. If you want to obey God in your life, and I hope you do, he says you have to work hard at that. Nice thoughts, good intentions, hoping your life is going to change one day is not going to help you step into the new life. You have to take some action. You have to work hard. 
But look at what Paul says in the very next verse. He says, for it is God working in you, giving you the desire and power to do what pleases him. So on the one hand, he says, you got to work hard at this. And then he says, but God's the one going to work in you. To which I go, well, what is it? Am I working or is he working? And the answer is both. You have to build up your obedience muscle. And the stronger your obedience muscle becomes, the less you're tempted by things of rebellion that you shouldn't do. And you just build that up over time. But he says at the same time, you ought to be praying, God, would you change my desires? I love this quote by Susie Larson. It's actually a prayer in her book, Fully Alive. She said, Lord, show me what masters me and slows me down. Anything mastering you right now? Started off as something you just wanted to try. It started off as something you thought would be fun. And now you say, I, I couldn't stop if I wanted to. It's mastered me. And it's slowing me down. She goes on, she prays this, help me to lose my taste for that which weakens me and acquire a taste for that which strengthens me. What if you started praying a prayer like that this week? What if you said, God, help me lose my taste for that? Because even though I want it, I know it's not good for me. And help me acquire a taste for that. Because even though I don't want that right now, I know that's going to be good for me. Is that a prayer that God could answer? I absolutely believe that it is. In his book, Bob tells a story about a time that he and his wife, Lori, were vacationing. And they were in a warm climate and they accidentally left the sliding door open. And so a bird got into this house and it was stuck between the window and the blinds. Always gets stuck there for some reason. And it's just banging around and it can't get out. It could see where it wanted to go, but it just couldn't get there. And maybe you feel that way. You go, you know, I don't want to lose my temper anymore. But whenever they say that or do that, I just lose it. I don't want to be addicted anymore. I wake up the next morning, I feel horrible. I promise never to do it again, but then I do. I'm like this bird. I'm just banging. I'm trying, but I'm not getting anywhere. Bob said in the book that eventually he had to walk over and gently cup this bird in his hands. And for a moment, he had to restrict that bird. There were some constraints and some restrictions around that bird. That bird couldn't do the things that other bird friends got to do. But the ultimate reason for that restricting, the ultimate reason for those constraints was so that Bob could walk outside and set that bird free. And friends, I'm telling you, that's what God can do in your life. God may put some restrictions. God may put some constraints around you, but his ultimate purpose is to set you free. It says this in Galatians. It said, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. What if you prayed a prayer this week and said, God, I need you to carry me. God, I need you to hold me. I need you to set me free from rebellion and sin. And I need you to help me walk in the freedom that obedience and the new life offers. Here's the second shift that needs to take place in our life. Selfishness to sacrifice. So rebellion to obedience and selfishness to sacrifice. I tend to be a selfish person. I realized this in part a couple of years ago. I was sitting at lunch with my family and I was eating some waffle fries. And I don't know where you stand on this whole issue, but I believe that a good cut waffle French fry is a proof of God's existence. 
that if I were talking to an atheist, I would point out that the, you know, science and the creation of the world, how did we get everything? I'd point out the resurrection and the evidence for that. And then if that didn't work, I might just hand them a waffle fry. And usually it's at that point that they're like, let me think about it, right? But I was sitting there at lunch and one of my kids looked over and he goes, hey, can I have some of your waffle fries? And I did what any sane person would start to do. I silently started to count them in my head. Like one, two, three, four, five. I had seven left. And I didn't feel comfortable giving up any of those seven. And so I'm looking at the food over on his plate and I'm thinking, you got your own food. These are my waffle fries. Get your own, you little vulture. But that's how I am. My knee-jerk reaction is, how can I get it for myself? How can I care for myself? How can I protect myself? But that needs to change. Because the new life is a shift from selfishness to sacrifice. Look what Jesus says about this. He says, take up your cross and follow me. He's not talking about a cross necklace or a chain. In the first century, to carry your cross, you were going to die on that cross. They're going to make you carry it up the hill, and then they're going to crucify you on it. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you have to die to yourself. Paul says it this way. He says, offer up your bodies as a living sacrifice. And then a little later, he writes this. He says, give yourself up as Christ gave himself up. Over and over again, Jesus in the Bible says, if you want to follow him, if you want to step into the newness of life, then you're going to have to give some things up. Selfishness is not just a personal problem. It's become a cultural issue as well. In fact, in the year 2013, the Oxford Dictionary Word of the Year was selfie. I feel like selfies have been around forever, but that was only six years ago that they were like, oh, this is becoming a popular word. We're going to make it the word of the year. It's because the average person lives 27,000 days in their lifetime, and the average young person today is on pace to take 25,000 selfies in their life. It's almost one selfie per day. I was at a Dairy Queen recently, and this mom came in with her two kids, and she bought them a couple of ice cream cones. And the kids sat down at a booth, and they were just about to eat their ice cream. And all of a sudden, she goes, whoa, wait, what are you doing? You can't just start eating the food. Hold on, we need to get a picture. And so she holds up to take a selfie, but apparently one of the kids blinked. So then they had to take another one, and the sun was coming in at a weird angle, and so then they had to take a third one. And then I guess one of the kids was looking in the other direction, so they had to take a fourth one. By the fifth picture, ice cream was dripping on the table. And I'm looking at this mom, and I'm thinking to myself, let it go, let it go. <laughs> These poor children. I'm telling you, some of our kids, they're going to be 30, 40 years old. They're going to be a counselor's office laying on the couch, and they're going to be going, you wouldn't believe it. It was always, look over here, smile, say cheese. <laughs> now, I'm kidding about this, but here's what I really do believe is true. I really do believe that many people find themselves alone, empty, and isolated. Because they're always at the center of their own selfie. That their life has just become revolving around them and what they can get and what they need and who they're with. And they may get self-love, but they don't get real love. They may get what they want, but they don't get what they need. 
Paul, the same person who said we need to step into the new life, he writes these words. He said, I urge you, in view of God's mercy, in light of all that God has done for you, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. He said, this is your true and proper worship. Notice he says it's a living sacrifice. To offer up your body as a living sacrifice means that something in you needs to die. You need to give up something that you value. Maybe it's getting your way all the time. Maybe it's material possessions or greed. Maybe it's selfishness. But something in you needs to die. And that's not real fun. We live in a culture that also values fun. In fact, if your kids get done with a baseball game, what's the first question that you'll ask those kids who go, did you have fun? Your son might have struck out in the last inning to end the game. You got just done punching your fold-up chair. He's in tears, but when he comes over, you go, it doesn't matter. Did you have fun? You don't ask him, did you sacrifice for the team? Did you learn some new skills? Did you have to overcome some adversity today, son? No, no, no. We want to know, did you have fun? People who go out on the weekend, you'll hear them say, you know what? I'm going to go out Friday night, and I just want to have fun. We daydream about a beachfront house, working from home, flexible schedule, so that we have more time to have more fun. And fun's not a bad thing. Don't hear me saying that. God's not against fun, certainly. But here's my caution to you. Fun is not the end all of life. Because sacrificing is not fun. It's fulfilling. Sacrificing is not fun, but it's what brings purpose and meaning to your life. That when you give up what you want for what someone else needs, that's when you find real purpose and meaning in your life. It's what can heal a marriage. It's what can restore a broken relationship. It's what can offset some of the evil in our world today. And you don't get that in a hammock. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is defining what love is. And he says, love does not demand its own way. I was emailing with a young woman recently after one of my messages. And she was telling me that her boyfriend was pressuring her to have sex before marriage. And his reason for this is he said, well, I love you. And part of what I was trying to get her to see is that love does not demand its own way. When you're pressuring someone else to do something that God doesn't want them to do, that's not love. That's selfishness. If you're in a relationship right now and someone's pressuring you to sin, that's not love. If you're the one doing the pressuring, that's not love. That's you demanding your own way. If you're in a marriage right now that's struggling, what if you sacrifice what you wanted for what someone else needed? You know what that would do? That would infuse a little bit of love into your marriage. What if your family is bickering and you're just pointing fingers and blaming each other and everybody's kind of at each other's throats? What if you sacrifice what you wanted for what someone else wanted or needed? You know what that would do? It would infuse a little bit of love into your family. For Father's Day this past year, my kids all wrote me cards. And for my younger kids, it was the crayons and pictures and all that. But, but each of them wrote something. And I was really emotional reading these cards because each of my kids noticed a way that I've sacrificed for them. They've never talked to me about this, but to read it in a card was was really meaningful to me. 
One of my kids, when they get upset, they run upstairs sometimes and they throw the covers over their head. And I've started to do this thing where I'll go up and pretend I'm a puppy. And so I'll kind of scratch at it and sniff at it and paw around. And, and they said in their card, they said, whenever you do that, I try not to laugh. And then I always do. I love when you do that. Another one of my kids said, thank you so much for serving our family. The time you put into my sport and helping me means a lot to me. Now, I'm sure that the reality of this whole thing was that my wife was like, write something nice. He's coming home soon. Hurry up. Right. But in my brain, in my heart, it was felt like it was very genuine. And I thought they notice. And that's a great feeling when you sacrifice and someone else notices. But some of us are in a family or a relationship right now and you're sacrificing and no one's noticing. You're making dinner, you're cleaning up after dinner, no one's saying thank you. You're giving up what you want in that relationship because someone else wants it and they didn't even notice or acknowledge. And that's really hard. But I want you to know today that God notices. And every time you sacrifice what you want out of love for someone else, someone that God created and loves, God notices that and you are walking in the newness of life that he offers. Here's the third shift that needs to take place. It's less obsession and more devotion. So you need to move from rebellion to obedience. You need to move from selfishness to sacrifice. And you need to have less obsession and more devotion. A few months ago, I was in a meeting and my phone started to ring. And I didn't even check it at first, but then it rang four times back to back. And so finally I looked and it was my kid's phone. We don't have a landline at home. And so we got the kids a phone in case they need to kind of call us. And so I'm thinking to myself, what's going on? Is my wife passed out? Is the house on fire? Is there an axe murderer at the door? I mean, what's happening right now? And then I just remembered something. This is my kids we're talking about. It's not an emergency. It's probably some silly, trivial thing. And certain, sure enough, five seconds later, I get a text message that says, Dad, NBA 2K20 is out for pre-order. Can we get it? I texted back. I said, what did your mom say? They texted back, what do you think? <laughs> a pretty good idea what mom said there. But here's the thing about NBA 2K20. It comes out the first week in September. They were texting me and calling me the first week of July. Why are you calling me and texting me at work two months before the thing even comes out? It's because they're obsessed. Anything in your life that you're a little obsessed with? Maybe for you, it's your kids' sports and their activities. You just get so wrapped up in that. Maybe for you, it's health or fitness or your business. Maybe for you, it's NASCAR. I pray it's not NASCAR. I'm praying for you. But if that's the case, then it is what it is. Here, here's what the word obsessed means. It means to think about something unceasingly. The word obsession means that it dominates your thoughts. When something is dominating your thoughts, when you're thinking about it unceasingly, it starts to push out the new life that God wants for you. Again, I love what Bob says in his book. He says, it's taken me a lifetime to wrap my head around this. And I'm still learning, but I've discovered that nothing can satisfy me or calm my spirit if God isn't at my soul's center. In other words, if your life is all about work 
and entertainment and travel and sports and hunting and golf and spending time with friends and social media, TV and video games, then pretty soon there'll be no room for God. And I can't stress this to you enough. If every waking thought is spent thinking about something other than God, then pretty soon your soul is going to start to wither and die. Your ability to hear from God will dissipate. Your feeling of closeness to God will feel distant because it is. Look at what David writes in Psalm 88. He says, my soul is filled with troubles. Anyone feel that today? Anyone have an anxiety or a sadness or a trouble in their soul? About six to nine months ago, I went through a season where I would just say, my soul just felt troubled. And I couldn't even put my finger on necessarily what it was, but I just said, there's something in my spirit. There's something in my soul that isn't right. David goes on in Psalm 84. He says, with my whole being, body and soul, I will shout joyfully to the living God. So you are not just a body. You are made up of a body and a soul. And even if your body is healthy, but your soul isn't, then your whole being is unhealthy. Many people have a soul that is spiritually malnourished. That they wake up in the morning, they have some oatmeal, they make some coffee, they have food and water throughout the day. They take care of their body. They give it the nourishment that it needs. But all the while, their soul is starving. They wake up in the morning, they race out the door to emails and meetings and school and conflict, criticism, stress and anxiety, crabby co-workers, defiant children, difficult friendships, and all the while their soul is on empty. And they don't just do this one or two days, they do it for days on end. Your body can go weeks without food or water. How long can a soul go without God? Jesus said these words in John 14. He says, peace I leave with you. Some of you say, that's what I want right now. I, I need peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. So then he says, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You say, I want to. I don't want to be afraid. I don't want my heart to be troubled. But how do I do that? Well, Jesus gives us a clue a few verses earlier. He says, remain in me as I remain in you. Jesus says, you have to stay close to me. You have to remain in me. Psalm 1 gives the picture of a tree planted alongside a river. And the roots are moving into that river. And the river is God's word. And it's just taking those nutrients in at all times. I've started to listen to the Bible when I drive to work and drive different places, just listen to it in the car. And it's amazing what it is to just hear God's word and to just let it sink into your life, what that does for your soul. A little bit later, Paul says this in Colossians. He says, let heaven fill your thoughts. Do not think only about things down here on earth. How many of us only think about things that we can see, taste, feel, and accumulate, and all the while, we're not walking in the newness of life that Christ offers? See, here's what I believe. I believe life is going to whack all of us at some point. And some of you are in that right now, that you've lost a relationship. There was a breakup. 
Someone walked out on you. There's a divorce. Maybe there's a situation at work or, or a situation with a friend and you're just bothered by it. And it's stressing you out and it's causing you to just, it's having a physical effect on your life. Maybe for some of you, it's a situation where it's your health or it's a financial situation, but life whacks all of us. And in that moment, there's nothing you can do to just zap your soul back to life. There's no pill you can take. There's nothing you can buy on Amazon Prime that's going to make you feel better. Horatio Spafford, a man who lived hundreds of years ago, lost four of his daughters in an accident at sea. There was a storm and their ship went down and all four of his daughters died. A little later, Horatio got on another ship and he sailed out to that spot in the ocean where his daughter's bodies had gone down. And he stood there looking out over the sea and he wrote a song. And it's a song that's still known by people today. And it starts out like this. He said, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot Thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. Is it well with your soul today? When you look at the interior of your life, your soul, your spirit, can you say, it is well? In just a moment, we're going to sing those words. And even if it's not well in your soul, I'm praying and hoping that as you sing, God would begin to do something in your life. And he began to set you free. Before we sing that song, we're going to celebrate communion with one another. And so if you're at a campus where you need to pass it down the aisle, you can go ahead and do that at this time. But on the night before Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. He said, eat this in remembrance of me. He then took a cup and he raised it up and he said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. He said, drink this in remembrance of me. And so we do. We eat and we drink to remember that Jesus Christ sacrificed his life so that we could walk in the newness of life. And when you get the communion elements today, I'm going to ask you, don't just rip into them right away and take them. Just pause for a moment. And it's a little tricky. You got to peel it back once to get to the bread, another time to get to the juice. But just take a moment with God and confess your sins. This is what I do every time I celebrate communion. I just, I take a moment and I say, God, I just need to confess some things to you right now. And so take a moment in the quietness of your mind and confess your sins. And then I thank God for the sacrifice that he made on the cross through Jesus Christ. And just spend a moment thanking him. And then ask yourself this question, is it well with my soul? How is my soul doing right now? And then we're going to stand and we're going to sing that song.